Thank you for being here today. I'm delighted to be here. If a man could have his heart in two places, uh, one place would be Amarillo, and the second place for me would be here at Truett and at Baylor, and it's an honor to preach to you today. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's begin with a prayer. Oh God, give us your grace today. Give us your peace today. Give us your word and your hope. Amen. It was December the 14th, 1996, Saturday evening. The phone rang and I answered. Howie, this is Steve Alston. Steve is a deacon at First Baptist Amarillo. It's probably nothing. Bob was always careful. But Bob Britton and his three boys went duck hunting in a boat today. It's dark now, and they should have already been back. Bob called Helen, his wife, on his cell phone earlier and told her it was getting a little bit difficult to steer. So they were heading in. They found his truck in his trailer, Steve told me, but no sign of Bob and the boys. They were supposed to be back in the early afternoon, and Helen called the authorities at 5.30. You say, you say Bob was always careful, I ask, really wanting my own reassurance. Always, he said. We'll probably find them somewhere huddled up on the shore I know he made them wear life jackets. Please pray and we'll call you when we know something more. That phone call was the start of a hellish nightmare that had no wind in sight. I could not possibly sleep, so we loaded in the car and we headed out to the lake. It was bitterly cold and terribly windy and winter dark. As we came over the hill there at Lake Meredith, I'll, I'll never forget the scene. The darkness of winter was pierced by flashing lights, red and blue and white and helicopters and search boats and official cars and trucks from every agency imaginable. And then word came while we were on the shore, the darkness, that Philip, the 11-year-old, the oldest, had been found in the water dead floating next to the boat. We hoped then that Bob had been able to grab the two younger boys and carry them safely to shore. The search lasted the rest of the night. In the morning, we gathered on Sunday for worship at First Baptist Church and said our special prayers. But before the service was over, someone handed me a slip of paper that said, well, now Bob's body, the daddy's body has been found as well. Once again, our souls sank, our hope fizzled, and the living Christmas tree 13 stories tall behind me didn't seem to fit this year. We held off the funeral as far as long as we could, hoping that the remaining bodies would be found, but we could wait no longer and had the funeral on December the 19th to mourn the loss of Bob Britton and his three boys. How could something so horrible happen to someone? 
Every parent or grandparent in this room shudders the thought of losing any child or grandchild. But now Helen, my friend, had lost her husband and her three sons in one moment, in one event. Her life was gone. Her hope was gone, too. Bob Britton had been a good daddy. He was meticulously careful with a safety on a gun, a, a knife around the campfire, a life jacket in a boat. When they started, the, the winds were about four or five miles per hour, and they were tornadic at 45 miles per hour while they were on the water. How do you plan for tornado-type winds in water too cold to survive, life jacket or not? Bob and Helen had, had met while he was at dental school. At the wedding, the minister introduced them. You'll do this. Friends and family, the bride and groom, it is my extreme joy and pleasure to introduce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Ms. Bob. Hey, hey, what's your name? Yes. Mr. and Ms. Bob. Bob was just the kind of guy that wouldn't hold that against the minister that he'd forgotten his name in the proclamation of the wedding. Philip, the 11-year-old, was... The one found first that awful Saturday evening, he was most like his dad, quiet, a bit more serious than the other brothers. Nonetheless, when he was a toddler, he was running around the house naked, and Helen, his mother, informed him, you need to get some clothes on, son, you're naked. And Philip said, I'm not naked, I'm wearing my bottom, he said in protest. Finally, on Saturday, March the 12th, now you doing the math, we started on December the 14th. March the 2nd, the second son, nine years old, finally floated up. There was a second funeral, a graveside for Patrick. Patrick was 100% boy, just like his brother, nine years old at the time of his death, the middle boy. I can see him now, his, his mother's in the driveway talking to family best friend, Susan Callan, and Patrick puts it in drive and drives their Suburban right through the neighbor's uh, garage door. I read a year's worth of journal entries for Patrick, a nine-year-old's journal, what he'd written all year in school. I read every word before the funeral. Let me give you a few of them. September the 25th, 1995, he wrote, I had fun on the weekend. My mom and I went to the mall. We got me a sweatshirt. My mom got me a cookie. She got one too. I always get a cookie when I go to the mall. He wrote eerily in a poem, prophetically, 1996, my dad. My dad cares about me, I know. He loves me and I love him. He likes to talk to me alone. I like to talk to him on the phone. He takes me where I need to go. He teaches me what I don't know. He buys me stuff like clothes and toys. He lets me play with other boys. I like to play with him and run. We always have a lot of fun. He always likes to keep me safe. I have fun, but I am safe. Our hearts could still have no peace. You're incomplete until the body's in the ground. Oh, we didn't have any doubt about the youngest boy, Ben, being in the care and comfort of Christ. But it just didn't seem right for him to be in the cold abyss of those awful waters. And so we carped and we cried to God like the psalmist. And finally, Ben, age eight, 
emerged on May the 7th. Now from December the 14th to May the 7th, a never-ending nightmare. Ben was a 100% rancher. He had the gentleman's integrity of his father. He asked his first grade teacher, now, I don't know if this is a bad word or not. Well, then whisper it to me, Ben. Okay, but you, you understand, I'm not sure. And if it's a bad word, you know that I didn't know that it was a bad word. You got it? Okay, Ben, tell me the word. Well, now you, you understand that I'm not sure. Ben, tell me the word. Asphalt, he said. <laughs> Sounds bad. Or the time that Helen's mother noticed that his britches were a bit too tight when she buttoned them and she checked and said, Ben, you have on two pairs of underwear. Yes, I know, he said with a toothless grin. I got a spare on just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Helen's story, while intense, at some point intersects with all of our stories. Why do innocent people suffer? It's a theodicy. My 30 years of pastoral ministry are a continuing theodicy. That's what it will amount to for you as well. And you and I discover here from the Apostle Peter that we are called upon as Christians to share in the troubles of Christ. And as we experience the troubles of Christ, we should keep on rejoicing. Don't lose your joy, Peter says, even when troubles come. It's a powerful message from the apostle to believers in Asia Minor, what we'd call Turkey today. He'd already mentioned suffering before. In chapter 1 and verse 6, is there's an if. It's a conditional suffering. And then when you get to chapter 3, it's a potential suffering. But now, as the fires intensify, by the time we get to chapter 4, it is not conditional or potential. It is actual for these believers. Many people believe around AD 64, it is Nero and his fires and his animals that are beginning to come against the Christians of Asia Minor. In the midst of this coming persecution, Peter brings the word, keep on rejoicing with fiery trials in your midst. Three things, Peter says. First of all, rejoice even when trouble comes because of the positive results you receive. Keep on rejoicing even when trouble comes because of the positive results you receive. Charles Spurgeon said, I have oftentimes looked gratefully back upon my sick chamber, and I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. I never did grow in grace half so much as I did upon the bed of pain. So what he says there in verses 12 through 14, these Gentile believers were surprised and accepting a gospel so full of blessing that somehow they were being persecuted. It seemed strange that the fiery trial was in their midst. Earlier, it fit our hymn beautifully, by the way, in verses 6 and 7, he, he compares these fires as the refiner's fire that gets the dross out of the gold. But his emphasis is not on the glow of the fire, but the purity that results from the fire. Kristen Wurtzen writes a contemporary song entitled The Fire, and these are the words. 
I've been through a fire that has developed my desire to know the living God more and more. It hasn't been much fun, but the work that it has done in my life has been worth the hurt. You see, sometimes we need the hard times to bring us to our knees. Otherwise, we do as we please and we never heed him. For he always knows what's best and when it's, we're distressed that we really come to know God as he is. The churches that are growing fastest today in America are not preaching this gospel. They're preaching health and wealth and prosperity. That if you only be faithful, you'll have no loss, no sickness, no hurt, no death, no financial struggles, no uncertainties. You'll be happy, they tell us. Is it really our goal in life to be happy? Or is it our goal in life to be like Christ? Those are two very different goals. Is it our goal in life to be happy? Or is our goal in life to have the grace of Christ? I say this from the pulpit, pulpit often, and it is absolutely true. There are three kinds of people in this room right now. There are people who are hurting right now, hurting today. Divorce, death, loss, sickness, biopsy, weighing the results, treatments. There are people in this room right now who are hurting today. There's some of you who hurt yesterday. If you're not in the first group that you're hurting today and you haven't hurt yesterday, you get ready. You will hurt tomorrow. Your suffering either is, was, or is coming. There is no exception amongst the people of God. I think about John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said, There is no one greater born of women. He found himself in Herod's stinking dungeon and an evil woman by the name of Herodias. You know, the story had taken him in revenge because he condemned her immoral conduct. Isn't he the one who said when he saw his cousin, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Now John's in Herod's stinking dungeon confused. And I love that the baptizer responded in such a human way to suffering. He sent the word to Jesus from his prison cell. Are you really the one? Or do I need to look for another? We were out there and I, I was saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth and the crowds were coming. You seemed like the one. But now in Herod's dungeon, you don't seem like the one. Are you the one? Maybe today you're at that very place, you're in the stinking dungeon with, with John the baptizer, and you're asking the question in your old soul and your own mind, are you really the Messiah? Doesn't seem like it today. Or do I need to look for another? You know, no angel was sent to John to tell him, hey, this is God's big plan. This is part of it. Don't worry. You're going to get out. No problems, no difficulties. In fact, when Jesus responds, he says, you go back and you tell John, the lame are leaping and the poor are hearing the gospel, and I am the one. And next in the story, John is beheaded. John responded humanly. Tradition tells us of the 12 disciples that 10 were eventually executed with Judas being a suicide and the other one exiled John to an island. 
if you're going to follow a man who's leading to a cross and he says, follow me, get ready. Get ready. I'm not sure where we ever got the idea that following Christ was going to be a walk in the park, that there would be a name it, claim it relationship, the Messiah, that somehow there was this great cosmic broom that would go ahead of us and sweep aside all of our troubles and sicknesses and deaths and heartaches. When Jesus said, I've told you these things that you may have peace in this world, you have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Dear friends, he says here in chapter 4, do not be surprised. Do not be taken unaware by the fiery trial among you as if it's some strange thing. This isn't strange. But rejoice and keep on rejoicing that as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. There is a persistent and consistent expectation in Scripture that we are going to suffer as God's people. And yet we are determined to rewrite the text in a way that we do not suffer. Or that if we do, God owes us some big explanation as to why we hurt. God is not a genie who jumps out of the lamp when we rub it. He is not our servant. We are his. It is our existence to glorify the Father both in life and death and good times and bad times. And sometimes he performs miracles in our midst and I've seen it and you've seen it. And other times he leaves his actions unexplained. Sometimes his presence is so real you feel it, and there's other times you find yourself in God's waiting room, and he is silent. God is no less real in one place than the other. Verse 13, he gives them the first positive result they receive. Keep on rejoicing so that the uncovering of his glory you may rejoice triumphantly. If I've learned anything in my years of ministry, it is that suffering changes people. Do you remember her before she suffered? She's a different lady now that she suffered. You remember him when his river was a mile wide and an inch deep and now suffering is knocked on the door and his river, it might not be as wide, but it's awfully deep now. Don't waste all this suffering, Peter seems to be saying. May the suffering you experience mold you into being like the Messiah, the Christ. Johnny Erickson, taught of the quadriplegic, who ministers so many, writes, When life is rosy, we may slide by with knowing about Jesus, with imitating him and quoting him. And speaking of him, but only in suffering will we, will we ever really know Jesus. Only in suffering will we ever really know Jesus. Paul writes the same thing in his letter to the church in Rome. Joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. Rejoice even when trouble comes because you share the glory with the Christ. Here's a, a second benefit we receive. Notice what he says. 
You have the, the presence of the Spirit. You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rest upon you. Seeing that you are reproached, he says in verse 14, reviled for the name of Christ. It's the same image of, of Christ being crucified and they revile him. They re- reproach him while he's on the cross. It's the same idea. Jeered by the soldiers at Calvary. Even in their trouble, no, especially in their trouble, these early Christians would be happy because in their suffering they felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. As you share in his troubles, you share in his glory. And as you receive the insults he received, you have the self-same spirit remaining with you as it remained with him. There's a second thing he says about our suffering. Rejoice when trouble comes because your suffering is not the result of your sin. Look at verse 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Now, don't misunderstand, Peter's saying. Just because you suffer doesn't mean it's the godly kind of suffering. Make sure your suffering is not the result of your sin. I get amused by the list he gives us. Are you suffering as a murderer? Are you suffering as a thief, he says? Are you suffering an evildoing? And then the Baptist one, are you suffering as a troublesome meddler, he adds to the list. You notice how meddler and murderer are in the same list? I'd put them in the same list right there together. Make sure, before you console yourself about your suffering, that your suffering is a godly kind of suffering. I came across a story from the United Press International from the Hartford City News Times. There's a bank robber in Oakland, California, who made away with $2 million dollars Daniel Canlero, and Daniel Canlero is suing the bank. You see, when he got the $2 million, they put one of these explosive devices in the bag, purple dye, it burned his thigh, and his attorney says, and I quote, Daniel is a very mild fellow, but he feels quite strongly that banks should not be putting these kinds of bombs in their money bags. Wow, really, Daniel? Ask yourself the question, am I suffering because I'm living a life that exudes the graces of Christ? Or am I suffering because of my own sin? The reality is that this broken world must lash out at all that is good. Remember the ultimate good, what happened to him. It will nail you. If you're like him. Here's a a third reason. Rejoice when trouble comes because of your opportunities to help others. Look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. What was to accompany our suffering? Doing what is right. And trusting their souls. It's a language of here in antiquity. When someone had to go on a trip, there's no lock boxes. There's no banks. You, you pick a, a trusted comrade. You entrust all of your welfare, your financial welfare, welfare. Everything that's special to you is entrusted. And my, what a violation if you break that trust. You remember Jesus on the cross? It's the word. What he said to the Father. 
Now I entrust or commit my spirit to you. They are entrust their spirit. How? In doing what is well. Entrust your spirit in doing what is well. Don't wait till your troubles leave to reach out to another. If I've learned anything in 30 plus years of pastoral care, it is this. That if I can get a brother or sister together who've walked the same path of suffering and get out of the way, I've done my job. I don't know what it feels like to be a woman to receive chemotherapy and lose my hair. I have never been there. But I got a sister over here who's been down that path. Can I get you two together? When I was a chaplain at Methodist Medical Center in Dallas, there was a lady who had a 16-year-old daughter who was dying. I, I faced about six deaths every weekend. This one was prolonged. It was over a five-week period. And I would visit every, I worked weekends every Saturday and Sunday. I would visit this lady. And every time I went, the same lady was sitting right beside her. And I never got introduced to her. And we could all tell that her 16-year-old daughter uh, was uh, losing ground every single week. And finally, on my fifth week of visiting, I, I was just being nosy. I guess I had to know who was this lady. I knew the family, and this lady wasn't part of the family. And, and I finally just said, ma'am, I have never met you. I was really saying, who are you? Why are you here? You don't fit in my picture with this family. And yet you're here every time I come. And she said... We go to the same church. My 16-year-old daughter died last year. And I've come to hold her hand. Keep on rejoicing. Even when trouble comes. Because of your opportunity to help others. I knew Pauline theology a lot better than that other mom. I could have taken her to the ground on the synoptic problem. But I'd never had a 16-year-old daughter die. My 16-year-old daughter is alive and well right now, today. That lady could take her by the hand and say, I know this journey. I know this dark forest. May I go with you? Keep on rejoicing, even when trouble comes. Because of the positive results you receive. That as you share in the suffering of Christ, you will share in his glory. And as you share in the suffering of Christ, his spirit will dwell you in a way you have never experienced before. And keep on rejoicing because your suffering is not the result of your sin. And keep on rejoicing because of your opportunity to help others. You know, our God does not glance down from his high heaven and peer at our suffering. He puts on skin as a Bethlehem baby and has a back to be bruised and beaten and comes and says, I'll show you. I'll show you. I'm happy to report that Helen Britton has remarried 18 years ago. She once again is a wife and a mom. She's even a grandmother to Graham and Eloise and Rosalie. 
She met a man about a year after the tragedy. His name was Jeff Smith. He lost his wife, Ellen, to cancer. He began to minister to Helen. He had two boys, Andy and Jeffrey, who needed a mom with experience of loving boys. I did the wedding a year after the awful funerals. The elephant was in the room. What do you say? This is what I said. We thank God for this wonderful occasion. An occasion that none of us could imagine a year ago. We thank God for grace and hope. And we thank God that even though things will never be the same again, that doesn't mean that they can't be good. We thank God that even though things will never be the same again, that doesn't mean that they can't be good. Of course, Jeff still misses Ellen, and Helen still misses Bob and the boys, and they were there last Sunday in their place at First Baptist Church. But hand in hand, heart in heart, they walk down the path of grief and run down the road of joy. God redeems all that God allows. Keep on rejoicing, even when trouble comes. Let us pray. Oh God, I know people in this room are hurting. There's some who hurt yesterday. There's some right now at the preaching of this word are walking through the shadow of the valley of death. Oh, there's some who are hurting from a divorce and some who feel betrayed and some disappointed by a friend and some in financial crisis. Some that hated the sun when it arose this morning. There are others of us for whom the suffering will come tomorrow. And, and Father, whether it's yesterday, today, or tomorrow, we need to hear these words addressed to the earliest believers and the worst of times, the fiery trial of Nero. Rejoice even when suffering comes because we follow a suffering Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen.